this time. Thank you. And turn, if you would, with me to Acts chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 23 through 31 this morning. You know, as we come to this text, we find the Word of God sharing with us the importance, again, of being spiritually prepared in the face of persecution. But the big idea, the thought that leaps from the pages of this passage is the importance of not only depending upon God, which is first and foremost, but also the importance of depending on one another, the unity that we need to share as a church body. Our nation, when it was being formed, had a speech that was given. And in preparation for the Declaration of Independence, Benjamin Franklin said the following, If we do not hang together we shall surely hang separately. As they faced opposition from England, the then world superpower, to the formation of colonies into a nation, Benjamin Franklin recognized the need for unity, the importance of staying together. And if it's important in the formation of a kingdom, I would submit to you that it's even more important in the promotion of a kingdom that Jesus Christ calls us to build in the Great Commission. God wants to see unity within the church body. He doesn't want to see us fragmented. He doesn't want to see us going off in a dozen different directions. God wants us to be together, united in purpose, but most of all, united in Christ. And that's what we're going to see this morning as we look at this text. If we don't hang together, we will certainly hang separately. We need to remember that. Now, when we look at this text, we find the scripture reminds us that we need to prepare to face opposition when we share the gospel. Remember, almost three weeks ago now, I guess, as we were looking through the fourth chapter, In verses 1 through 21, we saw a situation where John and Peter had gone into the temple grounds and they were there because on their way in, they had healed a man who sat outside the gates, lame from birth, for over 40 years. And there was the spectacle of this man jumping around the temple grounds and as people gathered, what did Peter and John do? They pointed them to Christ. They challenged them on their rejection of the true Messiah. And as a result, remember, the Sanhedrin, the rulers of Israel, were upset. They said, you're pointing people and mentioning a name that a couple of months ago we crucified. Stop doing it. And remember John and Peter's response. We have to obey God, not men. They would stand for the truth of the gospel in the face of opposition. Now, this is where we pick up in the 23rd verse. What Peter and John wanted to do was prepare the church to face that same kind of opposition. You see, if the ruling spiritual class of Israel had crucified the Messiah, had imprisoned his representatives, Peter and John, 
they would certainly begin to persecute other followers as well. So immediately upon their release, what did Peter and John do? What they did was go to their people. Look at this text. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. They wanted to go to the people to present facts about the opposition that they would face, and they wanted to do this openly. You know what I find interesting in this 23rd verse is this. On their release, Peter and John went back to whom? To their own people. You know, two to three to four years before this, who would Peter and John have considered their own people? The rulers of the Sanhedrin. They would have considered them to be a part of them. They would have considered themselves to be united and joined with them. But now, as they stood for Christ, they had to stand against those that they once considered their people. And you know, that's a part of our connection with Christ. We come out of those who reject Christ and we unite ourselves with Jesus Christ himself. The Bible teaches a biblical separation, not where we remain with those who reject Christ and embrace a lot of their attitudes and their lifestyles, but one where we depart from it. And that's exactly what John and Peter did. They no longer agreed with the Sanhedrin. They couldn't. They had seen the living God in the person of Jesus Christ, and it changed them. It transformed them. And that's what Luke reflects when it says they went to their own people. They were going there to talk to them about what they would face. And notice that 23rd verse. They went back to their own people, and what did they do? They reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. Peter and John pulled no punches. They didn't soften what they experienced. They didn't sweep it under the rug. They didn't say, this is an isolated event. We don't really need to concern ourselves with this. They presented it as what it was, a trend, something that all of them would face, and here's why. We never want to underestimate spiritual opposition that we face. We can live in denial and say, well, you know, it's not really that much. I think it'll get better. We can ignore it and excuse it and blow it off, all of those things, but the best way to deal with spiritual opposition is to recognize that it's there and to look fully at what we face and face it head on. That's what Peter and John did. They were facing this persecution that was coming at a fast pace and they were sharing it with those who would experience the same thing. You know, history talks about those who underestimate their enemy. Custer, the Battle of Little Bighorn, he totally underestimated the forces. He decided to go into battle ill-prepared, under-resourced, and we all know the end result if you're a student of history. One of the worst defeats ever because he underestimated who and what he was going against. And you know, that same thing is true sometimes of the church. 
We think that because we have this connection with God and we are a blessed people, we are a holy priesthood, all of the wonderful things that the Word of God describes about us, that that will deliver us from facing opposition. What the Scripture actually says is we can count on facing opposition. And that's what Peter and John wanted their people to understand, the importance of preparing themselves. So look at the 24th verse. And when we come to the 24th verse, it says, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. We need to pray when we face spiritual opposition. We need to pray to find strength from God to effectively serve Him. These people understood the importance of coming before God together. Now, in our NIV Bibles, it says they prayed together. And to me, that sort of softens the original language and what it truly says. Look at these two versions of the Bible, and I think they do a little better job communicating the idea of unity behind their prayer. It says, when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God, and I like this translation in the New American Standard Bible, with one accord. They were together praying. Notice, they didn't go off and say, well, you know, I think we need to have a symposium about how to deal with persecution. We need to go gather as many books as we can about persecution and have a roundtable discussion. We need to start to strategize and to plan about how to handle persecution. They didn't do any of those things. What did they do? They went directly to God. And they went to God in prayer. How? In one accord. Together. When there is opposition, there is unity. So often, what we find is there is disunity in a church when things are going smoothly. But let me tell you something. When I was in India and when I was in Kenya, where they face opposition and difficulty all the time, there weren't arguments about the color of carpet, There weren't arguments about anything that was outside of their passion for Jesus Christ. We need to understand what's truly important, and we need to understand that we need to be unified in those truly important things, and that's what the early church did. They came together in prayer about the situation in one accord coming before God. Look at how the complete Jewish Bible translates this. When they heard it, they raised their voices to God. Now, look at this, with singleness of heart. They were all on the same page. Why? Because they looked at the situation and they said, this is beyond what we can control. This is beyond the scope of anything that we can do. We recognize the need and we turn to God. Together, we seek God's face. So important that we understand the essential nature of coming together, seeking God together as a church body. Then the text goes on. After we find this coming together in one accord of one heart, we have a record of their prayer. And what we find in this record of their prayer is something important. Their prayer to God was a God-centered prayer. They were seeking strength and courage from the living God. 
And what they found was that they began their prayer by praising God. Why? Because together our unity centers around our understanding of who God is, who He has revealed Himself to be. And so what causes us to focus on who God is? Praising Him. When we praise God together and we reflect back to God what God has revealed to us, we find strength. We find peace. But most of all, when we agree with God's Word, we find unity. There must be unity around the person of God. And so that's what the early church was doing. They were coming together and they were praising God. Now listen. Praise is an essential part of prayer, and praise is is an essential part of our spiritual walk with God. little boy was asked one time, why do we praise? And his response, it's to butter God up before we get what we want. (laughs) That was his impression. That's not what praise is. Praise is reflecting back to God the image of himself that he has revealed in God's word. Praise is not us trumping up some ideas about who God is and what God's about and worshiping the image of God that we form in our own minds. Praise is saying back to God what God has said about Himself and expressing to God our love and appreciation for His attributes that He has so clearly revealed in His Word. This is what God wants us to do. God wants us to be people who praise Him, who worship Him, who lift up His name as we are called to do. So that's vital that we do that. And that's what the early church did. Notice the text of their prayer. In the middle of that 24th verse, after it says that they raised their voices in one accord to God, this is what they said. Notice how they began their prayer. Sovereign Lord. There was a recognition that God is in charge of everything. Now, there are many words in the Scripture that are translated Lord, but this is a unique one, an unusual one. The word that is translated Sovereign Lord in our NIV Bibles is actually a Greek word that we get our word despot from. Now, in our culture, despot has a pretty negative connotation, right? We think of it in terms of someone who's overbearing and someone who's hurtful to others. Uh, That's not the original idea of despot. Despot just simply means somebody who is absolutely in control and answers to no one. And that is our God. God doesn't have to check in with us to make sure everything's okay before he does something. In fact, God doesn't have to check in with anyone. God operates according to his character and his nature, and as the sovereign God, he has a plan that is unfolding. That's the truth that we find that the early church recognized. They understood that God is in absolute control, and we answer to him, and he answers to no one. He is the sovereign Lord. So look at how this image affects them. They address him as sovereign Lord. And notice next they say, you made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. Why is God the sovereign Lord? Because as creator, he has the right to be the sovereign Lord. He is the maker. He is the creator of everything. None above, everything else below. No one created God. God created everything. And as creator, he is the owner, the sovereign of everything. 
Now that's essential, again, for us to understand. God has sovereignty because God is the creator. And after they say that he made heaven and earth and everything in them, they then, then come to the 25th verse. And there in that 25th verse, what we find is Luke quoting something that the church also said. Not only did they have this view of God as absolutely sovereign, not only did they view God as the one who is in charge because he is the creator and sustainer of everything, they also looked at his word. And they said that the scripture is the very word of God. Notice that 25th verse. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. Now, I want us to pause there for just a moment, and I want us to think about this. They are saying to God that God, in his wisdom, inspired his word through the Spirit of God, and that it is the very word of God. Look at what we find in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. And then 2 Peter 1.20, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of men, but men spoke from God. How? As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It is the inspired Word of God. As the church was praying, there is reflected in what they're saying that keen understanding that the Bible is the Word of God. And listen, when we understand that the Bible is the Word of God, it's going to have relevance in our lives. We're going to see the importance of doing what it says reflecting its teachings and its truths. And this is what the early church was doing in unity right here. They understood who God is and they understood who the word of God or what the word of God is and they were reflecting that by their prayer and their seeking. But then we move into the quotation of the passage that Luke gives. This quotation is from the second psalm and it's lifted verbatim right out of the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. And what it says is this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers gather together against the Lord and against the, the anointed one. And Notice what they do immediately after that. They take Scripture and they say, this is what the Scripture said, and then they go into, this is the fulfillment of that Scripture because this is what happened to Jesus. And that's what we find there in verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus whom you anointed. So here they're talking about a, a view of Scripture where it is true, where it is God's Word, where it is fulfilled. But they're also talking about something else. When Jesus was crucified, the leaders who stood opposed to Jesus felt that they had gained a great victory. 
They looked and they said, we have crushed his rebellion. We have stopped this man's teaching. So therefore now we can come back into prominence. That was man's plan. But the church recognized that there is a sovereign God behind all of these things and that God's plan supersedes man's plan. And so even though it meant the suffering of His Son, God sent Jesus into this world to live among us, to suffer a cruel death on the cross, and to resurrect Him to demonstrate His sovereign power. And we know that it was a part of God's plan because it was revealed in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New. So again, as they faced persecution, they could understand that as I face persecution, I face it as a part of God's purpose and God's plan, just as Jesus faced it in the same way. Vital for us to understand that. And then look at the 28th verse. They did, and this is a powerful verse, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. God, you had everything laid out, planned out. What they meant for evil, you meant for good. Man cannot overcome the work and the purpose of God. So that was their vision. That was their view. That was their grasp of God's truth. And as a result, it gave them peace and strength. Understanding who God is and what He says. That's the power of responding to God's truth. But then we come to the next part of the passage. Not only were they praying a God-centered prayer, but then as a part of that praise that was the part of the, the, the petition to God or the prayer to God, now we come into the petition itself. This is where they actually ask God to do something for them, to, to recognize their plight and to address it. And you know what stands out to me as we come to this 29th verse, as they petition God to work out His purpose, they didn't come and say, God, crush our opposition. Wipe them out. That might have been a response I would want to make, right? Somebody's opposing us and threatening our lives. Most of us would look and say, just crush them. Snuff them out. Let them all die of a terrible disease. That's not what they pray. They might pray, well, God, get us out of here. Help us to leave and not have to face this terrible thing. They could have prayed in many ways at many times to somehow remove them from the persecution. But what did they pray instead? Look at verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Not, God, get me out of here, but God, let me endure. Let me continue your work in the face of major opposition, and let me do it with boldness. That speaks to their maturity, to their understanding of who God is and what God does. 
Often in our petition, we figure out what we want beforehand. And we say to God, God, this is what I want you to do for me. And we make our list. That is not petitioning God the way that we should. Petitioning God should be based on our knowledge of who God is and what God does. And we need to petition Him in such a way that we say to God, God, bend my will to Your will. Help me to understand what it is You have for me to do. And then God, give me the strength and the resources that I need to carry it out. That's what the early church did. And that's why they were wildly successful. Because of their dependence on God. So here are these people praying, asking God not to remove the persecution, not to remove them from the persecution, but to enable them to face the persecution, to stay strong, to continue in it. Perhaps they remembered the words of Jesus when Jesus said this, remember the words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And if they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Jesus faced persecution. And what he's saying to his disciples and what he's saying to believers for all time is, you will too. You know, as I thought about this passage, and as I thought about their approach to facing possibly the end of their life, remember, two months earlier, the Sanhedrin crucified Jesus. Only a few hours earlier, they imprisoned John and Peter. These people understood the ramifications of this. At any time, this will eventually get to me. So in facing that, again, amazing that they said, God, just give us boldness to stay strong and to do what you've called us to do. As they prayed that, as they sought God and those things, it reminded me of a passage of Scripture where the Apostle Paul talked about the importance of finding our sufficiency and our strength in Christ. Listen, there's no way that you and I can have the strength to face persecution by our sheer will. I can't say I will choose to endure and therefore endure. Because if I do that in the strength of my own power, I will fall flat on my face. My resources will be depleted. I won't be able to stand. The beauty of what Scripture teaches us is God gives us the resources and the strength that we need to face the situation that God places us in. What God calls us to, He equips us to do. And that's what we find with the early church. They were coming to God and they were saying, I need your strength for boldness. And it's very much like what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. If you remember the context of this passage, Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He described it as a messenger of Satan sent to buffet him. And then he says, three times I asked that God would remove it. And this was Jesus' response to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul's strength didn't come from him saying, I am strong enough to face these things. I have made the choice to follow God and therefore in my strength, I'll follow Him. When he faced true opposition and difficulty, 
he ran to the grace of God. And he found the strength that he needed to function, to endure, and the strength that God provides. And that's why he goes on to say this. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. You know what the key to receiving grace is, whether it's pre-salvation or post-salvation? Humility. When I look to God and say, I got this covered, I won't experience the grace of God. If it's salvation and I say, God, I am strong enough to do everything that I need to do to have you accept me, I can't receive the grace of God because I haven't humbled myself before God. And if as a Christian I'm saying, hey, I can do this Christian life thing, it's in my resources and in my power, again, I'm going to fail because I don't have the strength or the power or the resources. Only God. Only the strength of His grace. That's why he goes on in the 10th verse, that is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships. Look at that next word. In persecutions... In difficulties. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. When we perceive our own weakness and our own need, and we recognize that God is sovereign God, and that He has a purpose and a plan that is working out, and I want to bring myself under the plan of God, but in His strength and His resources, that's when things change. That's when we have the ability to keep on keeping on. And that's what we find here in the early church. They recognized that. They looked to God and they said, God, I need you. Now look at the 30th verse. Verse 30 goes on to say, Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, let's back up for a moment. How did Peter and John get arrested? They healed a lame man, right? So, here we have the early church who recognized that Peter and John were arrested because a miracle took place. But rather than saying, God, could you dial back the miracles for a little bit to give us a reprieve? We don't want any more trouble. So if you would just dial back the miracles a little, we'll, we'll go boldly when we can, but please don't do things to draw undue attention to us. Not what he said, right? What the church prayed was, God, ratchet up the miracles so that we have more opportunity. They trusted, depended on the resources of God to give them the strength, the ability to serve sovereign God, the living God, the hope for all that they need in Christ Jesus. When we are weak, then we are strong. And they knew that in the strength of God, they could face any obstacle, any opposition. Let me say this, that's true for the first century, and it's true for us as well. God offers us the resources 
that we need to live for Him. Our responsibility to recognize that we don't. To turn to Him humbly and draw from Him the resources that He will readily provide. To say that I can do it in and of myself is pride. I'll miss the grace of God. But to say, I depend on the grace of God, and He's the one who transforms and changes, and I need Him because I cannot change myself. That's Scripture. And God wants us to live according to that truth. Last part of the passage. After we find the church pray this powerful prayer, We come to see that power to serve comes through God's resources, not man's. We saw that through the prayer. We saw that recognition. But here we see the result of the prayer immediately. Look at that 31st verse. After they prayed, the place they were meeting was shaken. Now, what we find is this. When God's presence is there. It's powerful. Excuse the word play, but it shakes things up. The power of God truly shakes things up. Now, in this case, literally, I think there was some sort of earth tremor or something so that those who were ready to face persecution and had sought God's help, God was affirming to them in a tangible way, hey, I'm here and I'm with you. So I think they felt the earth move under their feet. I think they felt something happen. But you know, for me, while I've not experienced a physical manifestation of God's presence, man, have I been shaken by some of the spiritual experiences that I've had in prayer. God lets me know I'm here. And God lets us know that He cares about us, He's with us, Sometimes we get those and it's encouraging. Sometimes there's silence from God. And that's to develop our faithfulness. It's kind of easy to follow God when the earth moves after prayer. But it's tough when it feels like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. Faithfulness continues through both. For these, there was that feeling of intense presence in their midst and they were shaken and then look at what else the scripture says proclaiming the gospel with power comes from the Holy Spirit after the place was shaken look at the last sentence of that 31st verse they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly their boldness didn't come from a new seminar, a new plan of salvation, or anything else. came from the motivation and movement of God's Spirit. And when it says here that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, what does it mean? What it means is they had yielded to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and they had been given the resources by God to carry out what He had called them to do, the Great Commission, sharing the gospel with those around them. 
Remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, turn back there just a couple of pages with me. And notice Acts 1.8, Jesus' words. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. You will receive power when? When the Holy Spirit comes upon you. What happened? Here in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, they were filled with the Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Fulfillment of what Jesus had promised. And listen, that same promise is available to us today. In fact, God wants us to be filled, to be controlled by His Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 5, 17 and 18, it says this, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. In other words, listen up, folks. This is the will of God. And then this statement, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is having a dependence on the Spirit of God and experiencing His work in our lives in its fullness. Not resisting, not pushing back, not saying, I'll do my own thing, God. You do yours. But me saying, God, I depend on you. I need the strength of your Spirit, and I am seeking it. And we are filled in the Spirit many, many, many times. At salvation, we receive the Holy Spirit We're born again, we're born of the Spirit, and we have the indwelling of the Spirit throughout our lives. But the filling of the Spirit will come and it will go. There will be times where we'll say, I got this. We are not filled by the Spirit when we say, I got this. There are other times where we say, God, I'm preaching or I'm teaching or I'm sharing the gospel in your power. And we know that the resources and the power of God are behind us and we're able to do things that we can't imagine. Why? Because of the Spirit of God. But here's the overarching truth. All of this was experienced corporately. There was unity in all of this. The prayer expressed unity in their belief in God and their belief in His Word. The petition, unity. We're all united in purpose. We're all together seeking to do what God has called us to do. There wasn't a person here with one agenda and a person here with another agenda. It was all of them coming together and saying, we're here to serve God together. And as a result, what happened? They experienced the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And this is a model for us as well. You know, if you look on the back of your bulletin, the motto for our church is connect, grow, and serve. Paul had used that for years with the youth group. And we adopted it as a church because it was such a good statement. What we find in the early church is these people were connecting with God and connecting with one another, and that produced growth in them. And that growth produced service. We see it modeled in the early church, and we see it modeled in successful churches again and again and again. And if we want to see success in our church, we'll follow those examples. We will seek to connect with God, but we will also see the importance of connecting with one another 
and we will grow together in our relationship with God, and then we will serve together. That's my prayer for Oaklawn Bible Church. That's my prayer for myself. God wants us to be that kind of church. Let's pray. Father, we 